We are in what we call our apologetics month. If you're new, visiting, or just checking us out, apologetics comes from a, it's an old Greek word, apologia, and it means to give a defense of something. So when we talk about Christian apologetics, we are talking about the defense of Christianity, its worldview, its truth claims, uh, and kind of the overall theological trajectory of Christianity. So uh, we're going to be doing that for a month, and we are blessed and, and honored to have the best of the best come to South Valley every year. I don't know how it happens, actually. Yeah. Uh, and today is no different. We have the best of the best of Protestantism. If we had like a pope in Protestantism, Greg Coco would have been knighted like Sir Coco, defender of the faith, and given like a gold sword or something like that. It would be awesome. Um, we don't have a pope, though. Um, and so, uh, for the entire month of, uh, I was going to say October, August, we'll be doing this. Uh, Greg Kokel's awesome. He's a friend of the church. Um, I could go on and on about accomplishments and things he's done, but whenever he's here, I like to introduce him as this, as like this. When I, when I first became a Christian uh, and really started getting serious about Jesus in, in high school, it was Greg Kokel's ministry that I would log into online, and I'd listen to his radio program. I'd read the articles, and for a young, developing Christian mind, it was, it was food to my soul. It was enriching. I needed that. My, my faith, my, my, my way of viewing the world needed someone to make sense and, and bring clarity to all these deep, deep issues. So, Kokel, your ministry has been an incredible blessing to me, to this church. You are a friend of the church, and uh, we had you at our 20th anniversary of our apologetics month and now it's year 22 and we have him back almost every year because he's just such a blessing to us so greg kokel thank you i need a, a music stand for my notes thank you did 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 he just call me the pope of protestantism or something <laughs> I, i've never i've never been called that before and i had forgotten about that uh, about the past connection i was in really you know, we met about five or six or seven years ago, and I'm just really glad to hear that again. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yes, I've been here, I think, just about every single time for 20 years. Last two years ago was the 20-year anniversary. You guys gave me a big plaque, and it was beautiful, and then I didn't come back last year. <laughs> What's up with that? It's like, uh, love them and leave them, you know? Well, what happened was I... Uh, I had a very, very demanding obligation um, on a cruise in Alaska, uh, <laughs> suffering for the Lord there, but it was a stand to reason cruise, you know, something we had put together, and so there was just the conflict. But I am so glad to be, uh, be back to start my third decade with you guys. And because I missed last year, I thought I would start out today by telling you a story. I'd like to tell you a story uh, that many are actually familiar with, but few understand, even those who consider the story their own. It's a story about things that, that really happened, or in some places, things are, that are going to happen. It started a long, long time ago. It will end probably long after all of us are gone. It's a story, actually, about how the world began, how the world ends, and everything important that happens in between. It's the story of reality. But there's a problem with trying to tell a story because the effort is often going to be misunderstood. I travel a bit and I was sitting next to a uh, stockbroker and he asked me what I did for a living. And I always try to 
gussy it up a little bit, tell him the most dramatic part, so then he might ask me more questions. So I'm a radio talk show host and a writer, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, well, what do you write about? What do you talk about? That's what I'm looking to find out. I want to initiate the conversation there. Um, and then, of course, I'm at a little bit of an impasse because I want to tell him that I talk about uh, religion and ethics, especially Christianity, but I don't want him to make a mistake that most people make when it comes to those topics. Because most people will never say that what you believe, as far as religion is concerned, is false. I mean, that would be rude, maybe intolerant. But they don't think it's really true either. Not true in the way that gravity is true, okay? They think it's kind of your spiritual fantasy. It's the kind of thing you just glom onto to make you feel better, and everybody has their own different fantasy, and, uh, you know, and to each his own kind of thing, each is just as good as any other. They think of religion like a spiritual fantasy club, and I didn't want him to think that way about my own convictions, because those aren't my, my convictions. It's not the way I see this. And so um, my comments to him are going to be guided by a very particular way of characterizing my own convictions about Christianity. And this is a way that many Christians, I don't think, has fully, fully grasped. And that is, if we're not clear on something very critical, we are, we are going to be victims of confusion. So what is that something? Let me ask you a question. I want to, it's a rhetorical question. I don't want you to answer it. I'm going to answer it in a minute. But I want you to think about it as if you did have to answer it. And here's the question. What is Christianity? What is Christianity? Now, you might be tempted to say, well, it's a religion, which is true as far as that goes. Or you might say uh, it's a way of living uh, your life so that you can reach out to God and get to know God. Or you might, might say, oh, it's not a religion, really. It's actually a relationship with God or with Jesus. And I think that way of saying it kind of confuses some people on the outside, but I understand what, you're, what you're, t you're talking about. And I think all of those things are true as far as they go. I just don't think they go far enough. I think they're all too thin in a certain sense. I think the correct answer to the question, what is Christianity, is this. Christianity is a picture of reality. Christianity is a picture of reality. It's, a, it's an account or a description or a depiction of the way things actually are. It's a view of the way the world really is. You can call it a worldview, basically. And this is a picture, though, that's kind of made up of pieces. And the pieces have to be fit together properly for, for you to see the whole thing. It's kind of like a, a picture puzzle here. All right, where you've got a big picture, but it's only able to be discovered when you take the pieces and assemble them together. Now, in order to do that with a puzzle, you have to have all the right pieces. You have to have all the pieces, and you have to have the right pieces. You can't have pieces from other puzzles mixed in. And here now, by analogy, I'm talking about other worldview puzzles. If you get them all mixed in, then you're not going to get a complete picture of the way the world actually is. Okay, here's the problem though. Here is the way that the puzzle looks like for most Christians. It looks just like that. It's a pile of pieces. Now I know there's a whole bunch of you out there that are really annoyed <laughs> that I just dumped all those pieces on the floor. You want to come up and pick them up, don't you? I guess. You can do that right after the service if you want and put them in the box. So I have them for the third service here or the second here or the third today. 
In other words, they have never, they might have most of the important pieces, but they don't know if they're missing important pieces because they've never put it together. They don't know if they've got pieces from other puzzles mixed in inadvertently. I know people who claim they're Christians but believe in reincarnation. This tells me they've never put their pieces together to see the big picture because reincarnation does no work in our, in our worldview. It's like trying to put a carburetor on a computer, okay? It just doesn't help. It's no good. Now, how do you put the pieces of a puzzle together properly? If you're a puzzle worker, you know there's a trick. Some consider it cheating, but we can do it here. That is, you look at the at the cover. So you get a hint how the puzzle goes together by looking in a certain sense at the big picture. And what I'd like to do for you this morning is I want to show you where it comes to the picture of reality known as Christianity. I want to show you the puzzle's cover. I want to see, have you see the big picture of the Christian worldview so you never get lost in the pieces again. Now, Hold on just a second. Before I do that, I want to give you a different way of understanding worldview. A world, and I've already hinted at this, but a worldview is like a story. And nowadays, I think this is a good way to put it. And the Christian story is like many other stories uh, that are great stories in, in that it deals with the great issues that all people struggle with, the great questions that everybody asks. It's a story about peace shattered by rebellion, about love, about betrayal, about conflict, about self-sacrifice, and ultimately about redemption. Now, when you think about it, every story, if it's a good one, has four parts. It has a beginning. The beginning tells you who the main characters are and what the setting is, kind of gets you going. So if you pick up a book and you read the first line and it said, in a hole, in the ground, there lived a hobbit, well, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore, you know. It's kind of giving you the setting, okay? And then as the story goes on, very quickly, something goes wrong. There's conflict. And most of the story is spent resolving the conflict until you get to the end of the story and you have conflict resolution. And then you have a kind of tapering off. You know, they live happily ever after kind of thing. Writers call it a denouement. Everything comes together and it's all resolved, okay? Now, the Christian story starts a long time ago, long before Jesus, actually, and how long ago is a matter of debate, but that's not my concern here. What is my concern is that the Christian story is different from other stories in a significant way in that it does not start out once upon a time. And the reason it doesn't start that way is because it's not meant to be understood as a myth or a fairy tale. Okay? When my daughter, who, I have a 12-year-old daughter and a 9-year-old daughter. And when my 12-year-old was about uh, 6 years old, actually when she was 5, she read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she said, Papa, is that story about, the, about uh, Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Susan and the lion, is that a true story? I said, no, honey, it's not a true story. Some true stories are true and some are not true. That's not a true story. But that was clear to tell her that our story, our account, what she reads in the Bible, that is not like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That is a true story. These are things that really happen. And when I say true, 
I'm using the word true in its ordinary sense. I don't mean, well, that's true for me, because now we're back to fantasy again, right? I mean the, true in the sense that it matches the way the world is. I'm talking about facts here. I'm talking about history. And this is the point that I wanted to make with the, with the stockbroker or anyone else that I'm talking to about my own personal convictions. This is history. It's not fiction. And let me tell you why understanding that particular point of our story is so critical. Because if we are not, if we are going to make a difference as followers of Jesus, we need to be able to respond to the two biggest obstacles that are issues of pushback that a series like apologetics is meant to help us deal with. And one of those is the problem of evil. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why so many bad things happen to good people? And this isn't just from skeptics and the outside Christians ask this all the time. Why did God allow this to happen to me? I love Jesus. I walk with him. I'm a Christian. And we, were th we think that that means we are going to be shielded from all of the contingencies of living in a fallen world. And that's not the promise. Jesus said, in this world, you have tribulation. Be of good cheer, he says, though I've overcome the world. But there's a battle there, right? So there's this one problem. How do we understand that? That seems to be a mark against our view. And the second one is the a wildly politically incorrect notion that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Oh my gosh, that is so arrogant, that is so narrow-minded, that is so intolerant. How could you possibly say that kind of thing? And so these are two things that are real obstacles for a lot of people. And Christians have a hard time responding to them because they don't understand their story. One thing they don't realize is that the problem of evil is not a problem for us the way it is for other people. It isn't the problem for us, our view, that people think it is. And the idea that Jesus is the only way, this is attached to the problem of evil. These are two sides of the same coin. Singular problems have singular solutions. And it turns out that our story is all about the problem of evil. It starts in chapter 3, and it ends 66 books later. The entire account of reality is about resolving the problem of evil, and Jesus is central and unique in that role. And I'll explain that in a few moments. But unless we get that picture, we're going to be stuck. If we don't see it right, we're going to be st stuck. So let me give you the backbone of the Christian story, the true story, <clears throat> in, in, in kind of in five words. It's the storyline, it's the plot line, it's the um, most important things that happen in the order they took place. So this is going to provide for you a little outline. And there are five points, you've got five fingers, it's easy to keep track of. In fact, when I gave this at my church when my nine-year-old was six, she was sitting right there and she was counting off the points as I was saying them because she got them. Figure if she gets them, then. All right, okay. Here they are God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. Here I mean the final resurrection. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. In other words, everything starts with God, then God creates man to be in friendship with him. But man gets himself in a heap of trouble. And so God initiates a rescue plan. In our story, by the way, man does not rescue himself. God rescues man. And he becomes a man in the person of Jesus. And Jesus some, does something 
absolutely unique with his life and the manner of his death on a cross. And what you decide about what happened to Jesus on the cross determines what will happen to you at the final resurrection. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. You have a beginning, you have an ending, and you have everything really important that happens in between. Now, I've just given them to you quickly, and some of you are taking notes, but I bet you got it. What do you think? You want to help me out? Perfect. There it is. There's your outline. You want to teach somebody the story of reality, even in some? There it is. You want to get the outline of the puzzle so you can start putting your pieces together? There it is. There's a logical order to the elements. It's easy to keep track of. You have all the parts of a good story. You've got a beginning. You have conflict. You have conflict resolution. And you have an ending. So now I want to tell you that story briefly. I want to give you the big picture of Christianity. I want to tell you the story of reality. Now, every story has a beginning. Then the first words of our story go, go like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I don't want to go any further than that one line because that's just pregnant with all kinds of significant stuff. Let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, the story starts with God. In the beginning, God. Why does it start with God? Because the story is about God. It's not about us. The story is about God. It is not about us. And a lot of times we get things mixed up and we got the tail wagging the dog, right? And we think it's all about us. And then when things don't go right for us, then we, under, when we wonder, where did God go? My mom used to say when I was a kid, Gregory, the world does not revolve around you. Okay, so your, your mom told you the same thing, and you probably tell us. Our moms are right. You know, the world doesn't revolve around us. And we're supposed to learn that as kids, but then we become adults, especially become Christians. We think God is there to do everything for us, and we're the center of attraction. And then that, the, everything's out of balance. Okay. So the story is telling us right at the beginning that, no, it's not about, if I could put it this way, God's wonderful plan for our lives as much as it's about our lives for God's wonderful plan. That's the proper pecking order, okay? Um, not only that, notice that in this story, everything belongs to God for a very good reason. Why does it all belong to God? He made it. You make it, it's yours, okay? That's kind of the way that works. He made everything. People say, well, I can do anything I want with my own body. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe you're not the landlord. Maybe you're just the tenant. And if God made everything, then everything belongs to him, even us, and we are beholden to him as to how we use our lives, okay? So he owns everything. It all belongs to him. The third thing I want you to notice is the story has a theme, okay? Uh, lots of times people wonder, what is the theme of the story? And they'll come up with words like love or redemption or mercy or things. And those are valuable things, and they're certainly part of the story. But you see in the very first line of the story, I think the overriding theme of the entire thing. What you have in the opening line of the story is a king creating a domain. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the word. That belongs to him. That's his domain. So you have a king and a domain, or a king and a dom. You have a kingdom. 
The theme of the story is the kingdom. That means God, the king, ruling over all that is rightfully his. And so later on in the story, we shouldn't be surprised when a guy named John becomes, comes preaching the kingdom of God and announcing Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus came, he started preaching the kingdom of God. And those he trained to follow after him preached the kingdom of God. And the point is, is that there's a rift and a rent in the kingdom, and there's a call to restoration for human beings to come back under a proper relationship and friendship with their sovereign. So there's a theme. I want you to see one other thing, and that is that God is distinct from the rest of his creation. That is, he is immaterial spirit and he creates, among other things, a physical world. So God and the physical world are not the same, they're distinct. That God and the physical world are the same, that's a different story. That's kind of more of an Eastern religion kind of story. That isn't this story. And so we have two different kinds of things in our world, too. We have immaterial things, like, uh, like, like, um, like souls and angels and, and ideas and morals and the like. And then we also have material things as well, like birds and babies and asteroids and atoms. So both are at home in our world, all right? And this is important to keep in mind in the light of a competing story because there's another story that just has one kind of thing in the world. This is a competing picture of reality. And that story starts out in the beginning, the, the, the particles. It's just matter in motion. Uh, one person famously put it this way, the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. In other words, no God, no souls, no heaven or hell, no miracles, no morality, not in an objective kind, just molecules in motion. I call this matterism. Some people call it materialism, but it's just the idea that matter in motion is all that exists. Now, this is not anything like our story. This is a com competing story. This is a story that atheists and skeptics and communists, humanists believe in, okay? That's a very different story. It's a competitor, so to speak. It has different pieces to the puzzle. So the first piece of our puzzle is, is God. God exists. He's a creator of everything else from nothing else. The world he made is his kingdom. One last thing. Everything was exactly the way God's noble mind intended. When he made it, it was all just right. Everything's working together just right. Everything's in harmony. And this is just another way of saying that everything God created was good. Now I want to introduce another character to our story. He's next because he's the most important character next to God. An entire chapter in our story is devoted just to the creation of man, God, man. Now in one way, man is like many other things in creation. He's physical, which means he's dependent, he's contingent, he's a creature, he is not a little God. Some people are confused on this. Human beings are not gods. They're creatures, okay? But there's another element to being human, an invisible self. And it's not just having an invisible self, a soul, that makes humans unique. All sentient creatures have souls. This is the teaching of the story and, and the church from the beginning, okay? 
What makes humans different is the kind of soul they have. They bear the imprint of God himself. Humans are made in the image of God. So even though they are creatures, they are like God in some special way, which sets us apart from everything else. And this grounds all of our moral obligations towards each other. Moms, you tell your kids, don't treat each other like animals. Now, why do you say that? Because you know we're not just animals. We are more than creaturely. We are God-like in a certain fashion. And this gives us unbelievable valuable value. From the moment we are conceived to the moment we die our natural death, boy, we are valuable human beings regardless of what we look like, regardless of where we're located, regardless of what we can do. We have special value. And it's this imprint, this image of God and man that makes it possible for us to have a relationship or a friendship with God, okay? Which is the reason that we've been made. And God made a wonderful place for man to live in and gave him everything he needed to be satisfied, fulfilled, and happy. But, and the most important thing he gave, of course, was himself. But there's a problem. There's another detail to the story. Man was capable of living in harmony with God under his rulership in his kingdom, but he could also betray the friendship. That is, he could rebel. In a word, he could be bad, and that's called moral freedom. And this is something else that's distinctive about human beings. It turns out that man did not use his freedom well. Instead of using it to honor God, he used it to rebel against God. He didn't want to be under God. He wanted to be independent. He wanted to do his own thing. And, and when he chose rebellion rather than obedience, everything changed. Let me tell you how that happened. Because there's another player in the story, an intruder, a deceiver, a tempter, a mortal enemy of the king who speaks a terrible lie. And he tells Adam and Eve, our first parents, that the king cannot be trusted. Don't listen to him. Find your own way. Make up your own rules. Satisfy your own desires. Freedom awaits you. Be like God. And man hesitates, toys with the temptation, considers the lie, then gives in to the deception. And this one decision, this single act of disobedience, changes everything. Man, enticed by the promise of personal autonomy, individual freedom turns against his Lord and the kingdom is to torn by revolt. Rebellion, though, does not bring freedom. Instead, it brings brokenness and disgrace and guilt and slavery and struggle. Man is still beautiful, but now he's terribly broken. He's twisted morally. He's in active rebellion. He's spiritually dead. He's unplugged from God. And now he's enslaved to two new masters. Satan, who he chose to follow rather than God, and now his own twisted nature, which the story calls the flesh. He's guilty of sedition against his sovereign, the king of the universe. He is lost, and the king is mad. Now, this is not good news. And a lot of people don't like it. Wait a minute, I thought God was a God of love. Let me ask you a question. If you think God is a God of love, why is he a God of love? What makes you think that? Now, I'm not contesting the point. I just want you to think about it. 
I'll tell you why God is a God of love. Because God is good. And God's love flows from his goodness. Well, yeah, but he's angry. Yeah. But why is he angry? Because God is good. And he cannot let evil go uncontested. So the thing that grounds his love is also grounds his goodness. It's coming from the exact same place. And this is why there is evil in the world. Now, you as parents, you give your kids guidelines. You tell them, do this, don't do that, because you understand if, how the world works largely, and if they just stay within the guidelines, things will go well. But if they step out of the guidelines, they disobey you, something's going to get broken. Could be a dish or a vase. It could be Papa's tools. Might be a life, a relationship. And sometimes the brokenness is irreparable. When human beings stepped out of God's circle of protection, when they disobeyed God, they broke the world. And this is why there's a problem of evil. This is why there's a problem of evil, because God made it just right. And human beings said, no, I know better. I'm going to do it my way. And they're still saying it all the time. I mean, do your own thing was a slogan of the 60s, and now it's deeply embedded in the culture. People, just, people now even want to name their own gender, even though their body says something different. I can do anything I want. I could be whatever I want. That's the idea. Two things I want you to know about the problem of evil, though. One, I already mentioned this, evil is part of our story. It's what our story is all about. Two, our story's not over yet. Remember I said that most of any story is, is resolving the conflict at the beginning. You pick up the Lord of the Rings, you read halfway through it, and you said, man, I thought that was a good story, and now look at it, what a mess. The fellowship's all broken up. The Huric guys are all over the place. And the Orcs are beating people up. You got that big eye up there making a mess of things. What a stupid story. Keep reading. The story's not over yet. And we are in the middle of our story right now. But there is a reason for the delay. With man lost and helpless, God now steps into the picture in a very unique way to initiate a rescue operation to solve the problem of evil, God, man, Jesus. Now, there are two important things you need to know about Jesus, and neither have anything to do with teachings in general. And what I mean by that is if you're really taking with the teachings of Jesus, and you ought to be, they're great. But if that's all you get out of it, then you miss the whole thing if you miss these two things. What are those two things? Who Jesus was and what he came to do who Jesus was and what he came to do, okay? Well, who was Jesus? Well, first he was a man, he was a human being. He had a human body just like we do. He had a human soul. He had human feelings, he had human experiences. He walked the earth. In every way that we are human, he is human. He's one of us in that regard. But he's more. Jesus was a man, but he was not just a man. 
Jesus was also fully God. And this the story is very clear about. Our story starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus' story starts like this. In the beginning, the same beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, this one introduced to us initially as the Word is the very same one we find at the beginning of the story who made everything. They are the same. And later on, this is, of course, the opening verses of the Gospel of John. We read down to verse 14. And there it says, The Word became flesh, human being, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now, I don't know about you, but I think the first line is a pretty cool line. That's pretty awesome, God created. I think this is the best line in the story. Because it takes power to create. It takes humility and sublimity to step down. And this is exactly what God did. When you think about it, this unbelievable thing took place for God to be with us, Emmanuel. In order for that to happen, something unimaginable yet wonderful took place. And I want you to imagine right now if you have a child who is scared, frightened, and you want to calm them, you want to connect with them, you start to talk with them, you lower your voice a little bit, you get lower and lower. You notice how you crouch down, you try to get down at their level and talk with them? Well, this is exactly what God did. God came down. God got down. God got small. The story says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, but rather he humbled himself and became a man. And then, as a man, he became a servant to other men. And then, in his supreme act of humility, he ended up dying for men the death of a common criminal. This is Philippians chapter 2. You might recognize it. God came down. He got low. But he never ceased being God. He just laid aside the rights of his and privileges of divinity and walked among his people as a common person. So this is the answer to the first question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the God-man, God humbling himself to come down to earth. And by the way, this is not the Jesus of Islam. Just so you know, they have a Jesus, but it's not this one. It's not the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. It is not the Jesus of Mormonism. That's a whole different story. It's not the Jesus of the New Age. Those are different stories. Now our second question, and there's a lot more debate on this than there ought to be. What did Jesus come to do? Why did he come? Now, let me tell you why he didn't come. He did not come to establish love and peace and social justice. Okay? It's not that he's not concerned about those things. It isn't the reason he came. And a lot of people are confused on that right now. What if I were to tell you I could remove every single thing Jesus ever said about the poor and social justice entirely from his story, and I would not affect the main point of his life one single bit? I think that would sound a bit extreme. But this is exactly what one of his closest followers did. Jesus, rather John, the beloved disciple, when he, at the end of the first century, 
put together the most elegant characterization of the person and the work of Christ that we know as the Gospel of John did not include a single reference to anything that might be construed as helping the poor or establishing social justice. Now, does that mean Jesus didn't care about that? No, it doesn't mean he didn't care about it. It means it wasn't the reason he came. Well, what was the reason he came? Well, what did he say? In Jesus' own words, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to give my life a ransom for many. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, to save means to rescue from imminent danger. We're in danger. What is the danger? Think about this. What is the danger that Jesus is saving us from? I'll tell you the danger, and this might shock you. Jesus came to save us from the Father. Remember, the king is mad. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, Do not fear him who can kill the body, but not the soul. Fear rather him who can take both body and soul and throw it into hell. Who's that? It's not the devil. It's the Father. Because he's the one who's angry. And Jesus came to rescue us. Now, keep in mind, the Father also sent Jesus. So he has a a part to play in the rescue. It's not mere pacification. It's a package deal. How did Jesus rescue us? What did he do? Well, he did two things. First, he lived the life that we ought to have lived, but didn't. Everything we were supposed to do, but didn't do, he did. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly satisfied the demands of the law. And the second thing that he did was he made a trade, his life for ours. And the best way I know how to characterize this is something I told a, a, a young Muslim woman I was sitting next to on the airplane as I was describing this. And I said, imagine if we were taken over by terrorists. And of course, well, i got to whisper at this point. And they came down the aisle to take you and drag you out on the tarmac to slit your throat as a, uh, as a demonstration before CNN and the world. And I put my hands in front of you. She was sitting on the aisle. I put my hands in front of you. I said, no, don't take her. Take me instead. I said, what would you think if I would do that for you? And she said, I cannot imagine anyone doing that for me. And I said to her, that is what Jesus did for you. We all stand guilty before the Father, and Jesus says, don't take them, take me instead. To satisfy justice, God came down. Not Allah, I told her. Yahweh, not Muhammad. Jesus. God stepped down out of heaven, dwelt among us, and he said to the Father, take me instead. That's the trade. And the trade took place on a small outcropping of outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem. The locals called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. We know it as Calvary, the place of the cross. Crucifixion is a cruel form of punishment. Usually, death comes slowly by asphyxiation. Actually, the person hanging from the cross uh, can't keep themselves up to get a breath. 
In order to exhale, they have to push up against the nails in the feet and pull against the nails in the hands before they can exhale, get a breath, and they fall back again. And they have to do that every time they want to breathe, and pretty soon they can't do that anymore, and they just suffocate. For Jesus, though, the pain of the cross paled in the face of a greater anguish, a dark, terrible, incalculable agony that Jesus experienced as God the Father unleashed his fury against his sinless son as if Jesus were guilty of some immeasurable evil. So why punish the innocent one? Nailed to Jesus' cross on the top was a certificate. It indicated the crime that he was paying for by hanging on the cross. It said king of the Jews. So Jesus was guilty of sedition, allegedly. And characteristically, in the ancient Near East, when you had a certificate of debt like this, and people owed money, and the debt was paid, there was a word that was stamped on the certificate. And the word was the Greek word, tetelestai, and it meant paid or completed. Um, uh, it's like stamping out a check, canceling out a check. However, being king of the Jews was not the crime Jesus was really paying for because hidden to all but the Father was another certificate of death that was nailed to Jesus' cross. Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 2. He said that certificate consisted of decrees against us which were hostile to us. In other words, this was our rap sheet. This was the list of our crimes against God that God was angry at us for. God nailed that list to Jesus' cross and got mad at Jesus as our representative and poured out his anger on us. And in the darkness that shrouds Calvary from the sixth to the ninth hour, a divine transaction is taking place. Jesus makes a trade with the Father and punishment adequate to pay for all the crimes of every person who ever lived. Jesus takes upon himself as if he were guilty of all. Jesus says, Father, take me instead. And in the end, the cross, I mean, arguably doesn't take his life. That is, he doesn't die of asphyxiation. But rather, when the final payment is made, he simply dismisses his spirit to the Father. But before he does, a single word escapes his lips. To Tetelestai. Now, your Bible's translated, it is finished, but Jesus isn't saying, boy, I'm glad that's over with. This is a victory cry. He's saying, I paid the debt. The bill is canceled out. The divine transaction is complete. Jesus takes our guilt. We take his goodness. That's the trade. He doesn't just take our guilt. We get his goodness. Theologians call it substitutionary atonement or justification. Here's the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5. He, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The marvelous exchange. And dear friends, this is why Jesus is the only way. He is the only one who solved the problem. Let me say that again because it's really important. It's said very simply. It's very straightforward. It's easy. Why is Jesus the only way? Because he's the only one who solved the problem. No other man did this. No other person could. Jesus alone, the perfect Son of God, 
paid the debt for whoever trusts in Him so that they would not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, without Him, we cannot be saved from our overwhelming guilt. If Jesus doesn't pay, then we pay. And what I just described is a gift. It can't be earned. It cannot be bought. You can simply trust Jesus for it. And this is what the story calls faith, of course. And what you decide about that offer makes the difference in everything else that follows. It's the final piece of our puzzle. God, man, Jesus, cross, and resurrection. This is going to be a very short section. Some of the things I'm going to say may scare you. And that's okay, because it's right to be frightened of something dangerous. At the final event in history, one of two things is going to happen. Either perfect justice or perfect mercy. Perfect justice is punishment for everything you've ever done wrong and God misses nothing. Or perfect mercy, which is forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong and God misses nothing. All who have accepted the mercy that is available through Christ will go on to eternal reward. But those who rejected God's mercy will be judged by their works and found wanting. That rap sheet will be on them, and they will be banished from God's presence forever. And that will be a place of conscious torment. And I just want you to understand something. If we were made for God, for friendship with Him, and we have been uniquely, and our sentence is to be banished from His presence forever, no love of God, no mercy, no grace, no common grace, no God, we will be ruined and that will be hell. And there will be no escape. The suffering will never end. The clock will never run out. In fact, the clock will never even start. Everyone will not live happily ever after. So the story ends with everyone living forever. Those who continue in rebellion, banished to a place of misery and darkness, and utter loneliness and ruin forever. But for those who cease the rebellion, who surrender to their king, who receive his pardon, become members of his family, we will live with him in a new world, enjoying the perfect life he intended for us at the first, experiencing life better than the best we could ever imagine forever. So I've just told you a story. If you're a Christian, then this is your story. If you're not a Christian, this is still your story. Because this is a story of the way things really are. This is reality. The story has five elements. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. It's a story I could, I could tell you in a single sentence. It's kind of a long one. I'll take a shot at it. God in order, the creator of the universe, in order to rescue man from punishment for his rebellion, took on humanity and Jesus, the Savior, to die on a cross and rise from the dead, so that in the final resurrection, we could enjoy a wonderful friendship with our sovereign Lord, 
and the kind of perfect world our hearts have always yearned for. So now you know the story. And it may be that you also know what's wrong with your life. You! Your rebellion, your guilt, and now you know how to fix it. You bend your knee, you beat your breast, and you say, God, forgive me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. And I invite you to accept your pardon now. If you haven't, well, you can, and turn and follow Jesus, because this is not just a story. It's a true story. It's the story of reality. Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning to reflect on this magnificent story. By your Spirit, may it penetrate deeply in our hearts. Whether we know you or not, may it either renew life in us or bring new life to us. For Christ's sake, amen. Now, I have to run out of here real quickly, and I apologize for being so fast in my presentation. But I do want to mention two things. First of all, the book, The Story of Reality, which just came out this year, um, is available on the table out there if you want to get a hold of that. Also, there's some other things from Stand to Reason. The Tactics book is also out there. Um, this little red booklet, Jesus is the Only Way, there's some copies of that. But you have in your, your bulletin a little card that you can fill out. Okay, it's got a perforation on it. Actually, I have one right here. It's got a perforation on it. If you bend the perforation, there's a blue part. You keep it self-explanatory. But I would like you, if you would like to receive free training material from us, and you don't already do it, lots of you already do uh, receive that because I've been coming here for a long time. Fill this card out, okay? Your name and your address and your, your email address. We need your address, too, because if next time we're in the area, we'll send you an email and uh, let you know that we're, we're here. Uh, take that and fill it out. Go to the table outside, and we're going to give you this little card. This little card is Jesus the Only Way, 100 verses condensed into a card, okay? Five, nine lines of biblical argument. It's all right there. We want to give this to you as a gift. It is not for sale. You will only be able to get this by trading your card in with your name and address for it. So that'll be out there on the table. And again, my apologies for my quick exit stage right, but you know how this works, don't you? What a treat to be here with you this morning. Thank you.